a tourist was traveling through southern Europe when he visited a cathedral that had a human skull on display. Well, the guide told the group that this was the skull of the Apostle Paul. Well, the next day, in a neighboring city, the group entered another cathedral that also had a skull on display, again, of the Apostle Paul. One of the tourists complained. He said, now, now wait a minute. This is a little fishy. In two days, we've seen two skulls that are supposedly of the Apostle Paul. The tour guide, he replied, he said, that's right. The skull you saw yesterday was Paul as a young man, and the skull you saw today was Paul when he was an old man. Hey, there were dozens of cities throughout Galatia and Asia, Macedonia and Greece, that could have laid claim to having a special relationship with the Apostle Paul. He was not a man who let grass grow under his feet. He was always on the move, sharing the gospel, starting new churches. At the end of Acts chapter 18, Paul returns to Antioch, but after a brief stop, he's off again, and Acts chapter 19 records Paul's third missionary journey. It begins in verse 1. And it happened when Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now this was Paul's second visit to Ephesus. And Ephesus was an important city, one of the most prominent cities in all of the Roman Empire. At the time, its population was 300,000 people. Ephesus was the commercial center of the wealthy region of Asia Minor. People called it the treasure chest of Asia. Ironically, Paul discovers these people who had it all financially were lacking spiritually. He says, in finding some disciples, Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now remember who had just been ministering in Ephesus. It was Apollos. And recall Apollos' deficiency. In chapter 18, verse 25, we're told that he knew only the baptism of John. See, Apollos knew how to turn from sin and turn to Jesus, but he didn't know how to turn on the power of the Holy Spirit. He was ignorant of the Spirit's baptism. Acts 18 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and explain the way of God more accurately. You see, Apollos had been guilty of trying to fulfill the great commission while committing the great omission. He didn't realize that the Holy Spirit not only wants to indwell us, but he also wants to empower us. That we can plug in to the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And the missing ingredient in Paulus' teaching was replicated in his listeners. They too believed in Jesus, but they also knew nothing of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul said to the Ephesians, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Now remember, when Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and baptize, he provided them a formula. Jesus said that we should baptize believers in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, if the, if the Ephesians had been baptized as Christians with this formula, then they would have at least have heard of the Holy Spirit. But apparently, rather than Christian baptism, they were baptized into John's baptism, some sort of baptism of repentance or show of repentance. Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is another way of saying they were now baptized as Christians. Now, sometimes you run across people who point to this verse and suggest that if you haven't been baptized with the exact verbiage in the name of the Lord Jesus, you haven't been biblically baptized. You need to know that's not true. 
Again, the phrase baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus is just a way to indicate Christian baptism. In fact, in the context of this passage, if they'd been baptized as Christians, they would have at least heard of the Holy Spirit because the baptismal formula that Jesus gave us, the proper wording, mentions the Holy Spirit. Whenever I baptize people, I use the language Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 28. I baptize the person in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Once we were in Israel, we were in the Jordan River, and we had a group of tourists join our group. They were French and German tourists. They all came in, and they wanted to be baptized. Kathy didn't want me to do it. She kept giving me the cut sign because it involved, you know, 30 minutes or so more and all. Uh, But, you know, when a person comes up to a pastor and wants to be baptized, that's like a, uh, you know, you can't refuse and so I started baptizing people and baptizing people and baptizing people and the baptize. And the, finally, the last guy I baptized, he might have been drunk, I don't know. But the last guy, I baptized him once. He came up and he wanted to be baptized again. And so I dunked him again. He came up, he wanted to be baptized again. So I dunked him again. I dunked the man three times. And I didn't know why. Until afterwards, somebody explained to me he wanted to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't know that you need to be baptized three times, but that's the correct formula. Well, verse 6 tells us, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Before Paul arrived, when the Ephesians first believed, the Holy Spirit had come quietly to indwell in their hearts. But now he fills them and he overflows them. And it wasn't so quiet. It got downright noisy. They spoke in ecstatic utterances. They praised God with this gift of tongues in languages that were foreign to them but were given to them by the Holy Spirit. And they prophesied in their own native tongue messages from God. You see, tongues are praise, prophecy is proclamation. And both tongues and prophecy are communicative bursts. These gifts are like popping a cork. The Holy Spirit that's inside us surges out of us with power. Tongues is us speaking to God. Prophecy is God speaking through us. Tongues allows our spirit to vent its praise without our mind having to keep up. It bypasses a limited vocabulary with spontaneous language. Prophecy, on the other hand, is God's bullhorn. It's God giving us an instant message. It's getting a text from God, you might say. When Paul laid hands on the Ephesians, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And a sudden rush of power set off these gifts, speaking in tongues, and words of prophecy. You know, one New Year's Day, the Tournament of Roses parade was delayed by a float that ran out of gas. It was beautifully decorated with an assortment of roses, but the float sputtered, and it eventually came to a halt. It was quickly discovered that the problem, the organizers had forgotten to put gas in the float. And yet here was the irony. The float was sponsored by the Standard Oil Company. A company with vast reserves of petro had run out of gas. And this can happen to Christians needlessly though. We have a pipeline to God's power. His name is the Holy Spirit. We should never run out of gas. But it's up to us to ask God to continually fill us and empower us with His Spirit. Well, verse 8. And Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. The school of Tyrannus was a philosophy forum. There was a large meeting hall that Paul rented out in the afternoons. You know, the Greek work day was from 7 in the morning to 11 in the morning. 
and then from 4 to 9 in the afternoon. So from 11 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon, people beat the heat and they broke for siesta. Every afternoon, folks went home, took a nice long nap. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? There was a saying at the time, you'll find more people sound asleep in Ephesus at 1 o'clock in the afternoon than at 1 o'clock in the morning. This passage, though, gives us a glimpse of how hard Paul worked. You remember for two years he made tents in Ephesus, mornings and evenings. And apparently he forfeited his siesta in the afternoons to teach the Bible in the school of Tyrannus. Ministry was Paul's passion, not just his profession. I'm sure he figured that he could take his siesta when he got to heaven. Well, this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesus was the cultural hub, so as the gospel spread, it went out into the surrounding areas. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, notice Luke refers to these miracles as unusual, even for Paul. These handkerchiefs that Luke mentions were work cloths that Paul used to wipe the sweat from his brow. They were the Bantanas, so to speak. They were his survivor buffs, you might say. And his aprons were the cloth apron that he wore to protect his clothes while he worked. He would no doubt wipe his hands on, the, on them and smudge them and so forth uh, as he worked. Both articles of clothing would be soaked with Paul's sweat. And that's what made them attractive. I read recently where Jimi Hendrix's sweatbands once sold at an auction for $7,000. $7,000. Some poor fellow thought that there was magic in the famous guitar player's sweat. He figured that if Jimmy's sweat-stained DNA somehow trickled onto his hands, he'd be able to play the guitar like Jimmy. Of course, he was definitely disappointed. But I think this was the idea of pushing this preoccupation with Paul's sweatbands. And the interesting thing is that God used it to work miracles. This brings up several questions. Was there really something miraculous in apostolic perspiration? Another question, does God ever use this kind of thing today? Is there anything to these healing hankies and these bandanas of blessing that get promised by questionable preachers on late night infomercials? You've probably seen them. I mean, does this sort of gimmick work? I thought for God, healing power was no sweat. Get it? No sweat. Realize Paul was a human just like us. He called himself the chief of sinners, remember. Certainly his glands didn't secrete supernatural sweat. What occurred here had nothing to do with perspiration, but with expectation. You see, the Ephesians so associated Paul with God's power that the sense of closeness that they felt to the apostle activated their faith. And God rewarded their faith with his blessing. See, if you believe but don't expect, my question is, do you really believe? If you believe but don't expect, do you really believe? Expectation is the trigger to faith. And in the minds of these Ephesians, God and Paul were so linked together that his buff stimulated their belief. They trusted in God's healing. And you know, this is why God tells us to lay hands on people when we pray. Why? Because that's a trigger for their faith. This is why we anoint the sick with oil. Again, it's a trigger for their faith. This is why we celebrate communion and we tell people to come to the Lord's table and receive healing from Him. The elements that we hold in our hand and that we take and put on our tongue are triggers for our faith. This is why when we raise up holy hands, 
in the house of God. We expect God's blessing upon us. Again, it triggers our faith. The props all serve the same purpose. God uses them to stimulate faith. There's no power in the prop. It's a trigger that sets off our faith. And God always rewards faith. What God does through these things is give the believer a point of contact where he or she can release their expectation in the miracle. It certainly worked in Ephesus with Paul's aprons and with his handkerchiefs. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, when God works supernaturally, it's glorious, but it also brings out the wackos. Here, Jewish exorcists tried to take advantage of the interest. Notice Luke's words. They took it upon themselves. Rather than called by God, rather than empowered by His Spirit, these were religious entrepreneurs. They thought that they could mimic the miracle for their own ends. And chief among these con artists were the sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva. Notice, too, Luke calls them itinerant Jewish exorcists, which means they traveled from place to place. They were always on the move. Thus, they never had to be accountable for their lack of success. They got paid first. Believe me, they, trust me, they got paid first. And then they never had to be accountable. It seems these so-called exorcists were always on the lookout for some new incantation or some new formula that they could employ in their trade. And so when they saw Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus, they assumed that his wording would work for them. And so they gave it a try. We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. But here's what happened, verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Literally, Jesus I recognize and Paul I'm acquainted with, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Both the sons of Sceva and Paul spoke the name of Jesus to cast out demons. The difference was that Paul had a real relationship with the living Lord. See, the Jews saw Jesus as a spell. Paul served him as his Savior. You know, the power of God is conveyed through relationship, not through rites or rituals or recitations. It's faith, not formulas, that unleash the power of God in our lives. Using the name of Jesus without a relationship with Jesus is futile. It's like using a gun that's not loaded. These Jews ended up bruised and bloodied and ran away in the buff because they had no real relationship with the Lord. You know, we're called to go out in the name of Jesus and confront satanic strongholds, but we need to be sure we're in touch with Jesus before we invoke his name. There needs to be possession behind our confession. Well, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. There was public confession of sin in Ephesus. People were openly renouncing their evil deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. You know, even in the occult today, there are characters used in spells and incantations that are known as the Ephesian letters. They go back to the occult practices of Ephesus. Then and now, the city of Ephesus was infamous for its occult activity. And in Paul's day, when folks were saved, when they gave their lives to Jesus, they repented of their sin and they burned their paranormal paraphernalia. 
We're told, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This was the equivalent of the combined yearly salaries of 150 men. They, this is what they came and threw on the bonfire, and they burned in the sight of all. When the Ephesians met Jesus, what they formerly valued, they now saw as garbage. What they formerly trusted in, they now rejected. They tossed their horoscopes and their Ouija boards, and their New Age crystals, and their tarot cards, and their Harry Potter libraries. They tossed it all into the bonfire. Notice they didn't hold a garage sale where they could make a profit off their sinful stuff. Rather, they torched the remnants of their past life. They made a clean break with the past, and they pledged to live for Jesus. I'll never forget, it's been years ago now, when I first came to Jesus, I had a pretty expensive record collection for the young guys. You, you, I'll tell you later what a record is. But I had a pretty expensive record collection. But after I gave my life to Christ, it all was meaningless to me. I, I, I'll never forget taking it to work one day, and I took it behind the grocery store, and I threw it all in a dumpster. I shattered the records where nobody else could listen to them. And I tore the tapes out of the... Eight tracks, you know, threw it all in the dumpster. It was a big moment for me. It was a big deal for me. I had a lot of money invested in that. At the time, it was a costly commitment, but I have no doubt I needed to get rid of my past if I was going to move forward with Jesus. It was a turning point in my life. Afterwards, what happened in me is what happened in Ephesus, verse 20. The word of the Lord grew mightily. And prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul ultimately had his eyes set on the capital of Rome, but his heart still pulled him toward Jerusalem. Verse 22. So when he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. And recall, the way was one of the earliest names of Christianity. But here's what caused the commotion in Ephesus. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Now understand, Demetrius was the union organizer for the United Idol Workers of Asia, or something like that. He could see that Paul's insistence on people turning from their worthless idols to Jesus Christ, to the living Lord, was cutting into his business. The demand for idols was on the decline. It was falling off the table. He continues, so not, so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess of Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Paul's preaching and the spiritual awakening it had created was a crisis for the status quo. Idolatry was in decline. Demetrius was concerned. You know, Ephesus was popular for many reasons, but its most famous landmark was its temple to Diana. Pagans from the world over worshipped this Greek fertility goddess there in Ephesus. The great temple to Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was larger than the Parthenon in Athens. Imagine, 425 feet long, longer than a football field, 220 feet wide. By 60 feet high, it was surrounded by 127 marble columns. 
The whole temple was adorned with beautiful engravings and paintings. It was magnificent. In contrast to the beauty of the temple, the image of the idol Diana was ugly and grotesque. It was a squat figure with a female face, and it was covered front and back with mammary glands, a symbol of fertility. I suppose you could say the worship of Diana was a real bust, but you probably could say that, you know. Of course, when you came to Ephesus, it was important that you left with a little trinket to show your friends where you'd been, a little miniature replica of Diana. Demetrius and the local silversmiths, they were making a bundle of money selling these little souvenirs. Idolatry was big business, and the gospel had become a financial threat. And take note of this. This is how we put sin out of business. Not by picketing or protesting. Don't worry so much about the supply side. Spread the gospel. And it cuts into the demand side. See, our job is to diminish sin's appeal, sin's demand. If the demand shrinks, the supply will disappear. In the Welsh revival of 1901, every tavern and every pub in Wales went belly up. And guess how many anti-alcohol sermons were preached? None. Once people were touched by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, people lost all interest in their booze. Social reformation came on the heels of spiritual transformation. If we really want to change society, it begins by changing people's hearts. And only the gospel can do that. This is what happened in Ephesus. The gospel spread and the spreadsheets of the silversmiths shrunk. Because Demetrius' cronies felt threatened, they tried to enact some legislation to squelch the gospel. They meet to discuss the shrinking prophets and to stir up the crowd. We're told, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Today, when you visit the ruins of Ephesus, one of its main attractions is the huge theater where this mob rallied together. We're told by the archaeologists that in the days of Paul, it could seat over 25,000 people. Here these union members had erupted into a frenzy. They all were chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And while they were chanting, they grabbed the first believers they could find. Just happened to be Gaius and Aristarchus. Ben Franklin once said, a mob is a monster with heads enough but no brains. This was the case in Ephesus. It was a mob acting like a mob. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. But you got to love Paul's courage, don't you? I mean, Paul's first thought was, wait, a stadium full of people, I can preach. To Paul, there was no such thing as opposition, only opportunities. He was reasoned out of it. Verse 32. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. The situation was just total chaos. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand. And wanted to make his defense to the people. Now in the Roman world, especially in the first century, when a public uprising occurred, someone usually blamed it on the Jews. The Jews were the scapegoat. And so here the Jewish leader in town, this man named Alexander, he stands up and he tries to make it clear that the Jewish community had nothing to do with Paul and his efforts. But Alexander's attempt backfires. For when they found out that he was a Jew... All with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Just the sight of a Jew inflamed their pagan loyalties. Verse 35. 
And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Now, ancient records tell us that the original statue of Diana was made out of a black stone. It could have been a meteor. And the local lore claimed that it came down from Zeus, chief of the Greek gods. The clerk continued, Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. That's interesting. Paul didn't enter Ephesus and launch an anti-Diana campaign. He just preached the gospel. He talked about Jesus and the risen Christ. And the light of Jesus uncovered the darkness. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. This city official brought some reason to this frenzied crowd. He reminds them that they're courts for legal grievances. Then he warns them. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. Realize the Roman Empire frowned, seriously frowned on any kind of public unrest. And this clerk makes a good point. He reminds the crowd that they don't want to attract the wrong kind of attention. Ephesus had a Roman designation. It was called a free city. This came with special privileges and curtailed Rome's military authority. But an uprising gave the Romans a reason to enact martial law. The last thing this city wanted was for the Romans to crack down. And so when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And apparently all the people went home. Chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Paul set sail from Ephesus on the Turkish coast for Philippi and Thessalonica. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. Paul ends up in Corinth in Greece, and it's interesting, it was from there and at this time that he wrote his letter to the Romans. He wrote Romans from Corinth. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, back home to Antioch, he decided to return through Macedonia. Well, apparently Paul sniffed out a plot, an assassination attempt. And to avoid it, he changed plans. Rather than sail, he went back into Macedonia. And here's the entourage that traveled with Paul. We could call it Paul's posse. It included seven men. He lists them. Sulpiter of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. And Gaius of Derbe. And Timothy. And Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. One of Paul's reasons to return through Macedonia was to collect an offering for the famine-stricken church in Jerusalem. And the men listed here were the people entrusted to transport the offering to, uh, back to Jerusalem for their, on behalf of their churches. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Troas was on the Aegean Sea, 130 miles up the coast from Ephesus, And they had to wait there for a week to find a ship going to Syria. Verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Notice a couple of points. First, The early Christians apparently met on the first day of the week. 
Now, this might appear trivial at first, but think it through. For 1,500 years, Jews met to worship God on the last day of the week, on the Sabbath. Why did the early Christians change their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday? There's only one reason. Church meetings were a celebration of the resurrection. Jesus was raised on what day? On the first day of the week, on Sunday. Something dramatic budged a ritualistic people out of a proud tradition. The transforming event, what changed their day of worship, was Jesus' victory over death. Second thing I want you to notice is that the Christians at Troas, they met Sunday night rather than Saturday, I'm sorry, rather than Sunday morning. We meet on Sunday mornings. They met on Sunday nights. And what was the reason for that? Well, in pagan Rome, Sunday was a work day, not a day off. Believers labored all day on Sunday. And when their job ended, they met together to worship the Lord. And then third notice, Paul's ship sailed at sunrise. This was his last opportunity to speak to the believers in Troas. And so I guess you could say he took his watch off. He didn't worry about the parents getting their kids to bed that night or the guys going to work the next day. He preached until he had nothing left to say. If Paul started his sermon at 7, say, he finished at midnight, this means he preached a five-hour sermon. And you think I'm long-winded. Well, there's another detail about this room where Paul preached in verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Understand, in the first century, Christians were a strange new minority. And all kinds of rumors circulated about the Christians. For one, they were accused of sexual promiscuity since they always talked about love. The practice of communion also caused misconceptions. It was said that Christians ate the body of Christ. The pagans thought, are they cannibals? Some said they even drank his blood. They thought, are they vampires? Because of these suspicions, the early church lit their meeting halls with an abundance of candle power. They wanted the room to be so bright that there could be no secrets. They wanted everything up front, you know, where people could see. Now, now put all this together and you can get the feel for the conditions in that meeting room at Troas. It was a Sunday evening after a long, tiring day at work. Add a long-winded preacher. Add a stuffy, smoke-filled room. Add all that up. And poor old Eutychus didn't have a chance. And in a window said a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. In fairness to Eutychus, he probably went to the window to get some fresh air. He thought the night air might wake him up. Kind of if you get tired when you're driving, you roll the window down, you stick your head out the window. You know. He went to the window to try to help himself. But he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. His fall proved fatal. He fell out of the window three stories to the ground. He hit the dirt, died on impact. Drowsiness led to his death. I've had people get drowsy and fall out of their chair, but never out of a window. Verse 10. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Reminds me of the man who fell asleep during the pastor's sermon. The pastor shouted at the usher. He said, hey, would you wake up that fellow? The usher shouted back, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. <clears throat> Here Paul is a responsible preacher. Since he puts Eutychus to sleep, he's the one that should wake him up. And so he falls on Eutychus, Elisha's style. God works a miracle. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive. And they were not a little comforted. What a night that was. Paul raised the dead and he served a meal. 
He went on fellowshipping until daybreak. It was finally time to go. Of course, Eutychus is not the only person who's ever dozed off. I know some Christians who doze off spiritually. They get sluggish, they get sleepy, and they fall as a consequence. And like Paul, the body of Christ needs to go to them and cover them and revive them with our warmth and with our love. We'll resuscitate them with our compassion. It's love that awakens a cold heart and revives a slumbering spirit. Verse 13, then we, notice Luke's writing, he says we, he's speaking of himself and Paul's posse, we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. From Troas to Asos was about 25 miles. Paul could walk it as fast as his posse could sail. And apparently Paul wanted to spend some time with the Lord. Since he had stayed up all night, he decided to pray while he walked. And you know, if you have problems dozing off while you pray, then I suggest you be like Paul and pray while you walk. It's hard to go to sleep when you're walking. I like to do that myself. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite to Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Triliglium. The next day, we came to Miletus. In other words, the ship was working its way eastward along the Turkish coast. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. The beach at Miletus was 28 miles south of Ephesus. If Paul had docked in Ephesus, a thriving church, many, many friends would have forced him to stay. He could have been there for weeks. He was in a hurry. And so he skips Ephesus, and from Miletus, he sends word to the elders that he's hosting a leadership summit. You know, in the book of Acts, we have eight of Paul's sermons. Most of his messages are from Paul the evangelist or Paul the apologist. But here we hear from Paul the pastor. His words on the beach to these elders from Ephesus reveal his love for the church, for the flock of God. They should reflect the heart of every pastor. Verse 18. And When they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. I think it's interesting. Paul was not an ivory tower preacher. He wasn't aloof from his people. Paul wasn't isolated. He lived among the people he served. Paul's ideas were lofty and heavenly, but his feet were firmly planted on the ground. He lived among them, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to be to me by the plotting of the Jews. Remember, everywhere Paul went, he'd been persecuted. Most often it was by the Jews. But Paul came serving the Lord with all humility. You know, too many pastors today, they develop an entitlement mentality. They make a few sacrifices and then they think that God or people owe them. Not Paul. He was a giver, not a taker. He reminds them how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you. Paul kept back nothing. He, he left it all in the field, you could say. He, why sir, save a sermon for a rainy day when today might be our last day? To spend and be spent was Paul's motto. The apostle's goal was to die with nothing left in his tank. Verse 20, And I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Everywhere Paul traveled, he was forewarned about trouble in Jerusalem. Yet the warnings didn't deter him. Verse 24. But none of these things move me 
nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. A concern for his safety was not Paul's concern. He had but one pressing priority, and that was finishing his race with joy to faithfully preach the gospel of God's grace. He says, And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. This was Paul's last visit to Ephesus. He knew he'd never travel this way again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And at the end of my journey, this is what I hope I can say. My goal as a pastor has been to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. You know, too many pastors, they preach part and parcel. They dwell on their own pet subjects. But what their people really need is the whole counsel of God, the whole enchilada. You know, it's been said, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. At times I grieve that there's not more of an appetite for this type of teaching. I think Wednesday night should be packed. But I realize a methodical approach is more demanding. But this is the diet that it takes to create real consistent growth in a person's life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Notice, before a pastor takes heed to the flock, he needs to take heed to himself. Pastors burn out on ministry for God because they don't receive ministry from God. The neediest person I know is me. Ministry won't last very long or be successful if you're pouring from an empty cup. Every minister's first priority is to take heed to himself, then to God's flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. An elder oversees and shepherds people who are dear to God, who are loved by God. The church was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And a shepherd has two duties toward God's flock. He leads and he feeds. He oversees and he undergirds. You know, once a man bought his parents this exotic, tropical talking bird. He paid thousands of dollars for this rare bird, and he sent it to them as an anniversary gift. He thought it would keep them company in their old age. After a few days, he called his dad, and he asked him how he liked the bird. His father replied, son, it was delicious. Your mother and I ate every bite. Pastors need to remember that the sheep are not for lamb chops. The flock of God cost God his, the blood of his only son. God wants his flock to be nurtured, not sacrificed for the pastor. And God also wants the flock protected. He says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. A faithful shepherd feeds the flock. A wolf feeds on the flock. Predators fleece the flock to pad their own pockets. He says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up. And notice these wolves, they come from two directions, from within the church and from without. When the devil can't defeat a church, guess what he does? He joins it. He can sabotage from the inside as easily as he can attack from the outside. Wolves come speaking perverse things. To draw away the disciples after themselves. And here's how you know a wolf. Rather than create followers of Jesus, he creates his own followers. He draws folks after himself. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. For three years Paul cared for them with tears. So now brethren I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. With spiritual predators on the prowl, with wolves attacking the sheep, 
How can there be any hope for prosperity for God's flock? Well, here he tells us it's the word of God that builds us up. It's the word of God that guarantees our inheritance. Our safety is in the scriptures, and Paul taught them to continue in the word of God's grace. Verse 33, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. In other words, Paul wasn't after their money. As in Corinth, he made tents to support himself while he was in Ephesus. He served the church without being a financial burden on them. He says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul was an example. He could have demanded a salary, but he wanted to prove to the Ephesians that it was more blessed to give than to receive. By the way, where did Paul get this quote from Jesus? It's more blessed to give than to receive. We have no idea. It's not in the Gospels. He must have had some other source. Verse 35 is called the supreme beatitude. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. As Juliet said to Romeo, parting is such sweet sorrow. Paul loved the church at Ephesus. And the Ephesians loved Paul. And yet here they have to say goodbye. This is powerful. Here grown men hug each other and cry together. Tears drop into the sand. The elders leave encouraged and instructed while Paul sets sail from Ephesus with these people on his heart.